The last time I flew to Australia, my plane was delayed in Los Angeles. So I took an Uber from the airport to Venice Beach and walked around the bustling sandy walkways, staring out at tiny boats on the horizon. I listened to a homeless piano player banging on the keys of an upright piano someone had hauled from a thrift store to the boardwalk. I observed couples holding hands, vendors shooing me into their shops to buy hats and sunglasses and various glittery items. I took in the smells of donuts, fried foods, and salt wafting through the air. I encountered local hip-hop musicians peddling their music and trying earnestly to win my crumpled $5 bill. I stepped aside for skaters and cyclists to pass by, for kids with balloons and dogs. I witnessed artists selling prints and shop after shop disappearing into the distance. Eventually, I found my way to a small bookshop tucked away in a corner where the noises of the piano player and seagulls, the distant sounds of hippies on the sand playing out-of-sync rhythms on drunken maracas and djembes, all faded as the door shut behind me. I traded the bustle of the outside world for a quiet sanctuary and the smell of ink on fresh paper. The shopkeeper looked up at me from the rims of her glasses, then continued to read whatever she had in her hand. Her cap made its way to my ankles and soon followed me through the store as I flipped the pages of book after book. If you know me at all, you'll know this isn't an out-of-the-ordinary experience. Good coffee, good wine, spicy food, and old rustic bookshops, and maybe delayed airplanes too. These are the staples of my journeys. My shelves at home are full of the spoils I've collected from cities across the world. This trip would be no different. I found an interesting title in the art section called Spiritual American Trash, Portraits from the Margins of Art and Faith by Greg Bottoms. Before I made my way back to LAX, I made room for this book in my backpack and spent the long flight to Sydney learning of eccentric artists considered outsider artists. Outsider artists have been described as self-taught artists often living at the edges of society in poor or difficult circumstances and using non-conventional materials in their work, found objects and throwaway items. Many outsider artists are inspired by a spiritual vision or a psychological obsession that overshadows the details of their normal lives. One previous outsider artist we featured here on Makers and Mystics is the backwoods preacher Howard Finster from episode 5 of this artist profile series. Today's profile will introduce us to an African-American janitor and heavenly visionary, James Hampton, whom I learned about from this book, Spiritual American Trash. James Hampton was born in 1909 in Ellery, South Carolina, as one of four children to his father James and mother Sarah. At an early age, his father abandoned the family to travel as an itinerant Baptist preacher, leaving his mother to take care of their young children on her own. In 1928, at the age of 19, James Jr. moved to Washington, D.C., where he lived with his brother in a small apartment and worked as a short-order cook in various diners around town. He was drafted into the Army in 1942, but returned to Washington, D.C. four years later on an honorary discharge. His brother died shortly thereafter, leaving him a lonely man with no friends or family in the area. James picked up a somewhat normal life again, working as a janitor for a government agency and attending church on Sunday mornings. 
But by 1949, he was overcome by an urgency that we were living in the end times and began to sense what he felt was the imminent return of Jesus. James had a history of mystical encounters, claiming to have been visited by Moses, the Virgin Mary, and Adam. In 1950, he woke from what was perhaps his most intense and lasting encounter, a dream where God appeared and instructed him to build a throne for Christ's second coming. In response to the dream, James rented an abandoned garage with no heat and only dim, unfit lighting. The garage was located about a mile from the White House, down an alleyway in a deteriorating neighborhood rampant with crime. He told the landlord he was working on something too big to fit in his boarding house room and offered no further information. Then night after night, when he finished his midnight shift scrubbing toilets and mopping government floors, James rolled a child's wagon full of scavenged materials to his garage where he embarked on his true work for the rest of the night. He spent his days collecting scraps of tinfoil and cardboard, busted light bulbs and empty jars. He collected throwaway items from the trash cans of his janitorial job and glass bottles bums had tossed to the curb. He took silver wrappings from cigarette packs, pieces of plastic and gold-flecked items others had deemed worthless, and with them he constructed a throne for the Lord. For the next 14 years of his life, James worked in a secluded devotion to this creation, building the throne with composites of trash held together by thumbtacks, tape, and glue. He constructed crowns and angels' wings, seven-pointed stars and cherubs made from cardboard and overlaid with gold and silver foil. He made altars with intricate details and labeled particular sections with names from Old and New Testament stories alike. By the time of his death in November of 1964, James Hampton had built 180 different individual pieces of art, all of which belonged to this massive installation, which he titled The Throne of the Third Heaven of the Nation's Millennium General Assembly. Hardly anyone had laid eyes on this massive labor of religious devotion, which he meticulously put together night after sleepless night. But viewers weren't his aim. This work wasn't symbolic and it wasn't intended for a gallery. In James's mind, this was to be a throne for the Lord's return. He offered the piece to several local churches to be used as a teaching tool, but no one took him up on the offer. So he continued to work on his creation in private, drawing encouragement from his strange encounters with the appearances of biblical figures who furthered his devotion to the work. He documented these encounters in a spiral-bound notebook, which he considered to be new commandments as well as a new book of Revelation. And what's fascinating is that the majority of his book was written in a coded language which to this day no one has been able to decode. He called the book the Book of the Seven Dispensation by St. James. Some scholars have concluded the writing is untranslatable or perhaps could be a written form of speaking in tongues. Yet others assure this Hamptonese, as it's termed, is not gibberish, only difficult to crack open. After James's death, his sculpture and manuscripts were found by the owner of the garage who came by to find out why his rent had not been paid. 
He showed the sculpture to James's sister, who had come into town to settle his affairs, but she showed no interest in taking the sculpture for herself. So the landlord, eager to empty out his garage and rent it to another tenant, put out an ad in the local newspaper and attracted the attention of sculptors and artists who were amazed at what they saw. One connection led to another until finally pop artist Robert Rauschenberg came to see the sculpture and then the assistant director of the Smithsonian Art Museum, Harry Lowe. Harry paid the landlord James's overdue rent and carefully transported the delicate sculpture to the Smithsonian. Today, James Hampton's 180-piece throne remains at the Smithsonian Museum of Art. During his lifetime, I don't know that James Hampton would have considered himself an artist. He was overcome by a fiery vision and was faithful to what he had felt to be from God. What are we to take away from this complex and religious compulsion that fueled his life? Is James Hampton to be written off as yet another mentally unstable and misguided religious zealot? Perhaps from one perspective. But when I consider this work, that conclusion is not what comes to mind. What I see is a depiction of both the frailty and the sublime nature of our humanity. A throne built for the creator of the universe out of discarded human trash, cigarette wrappers, and empty bottles of beer, hidden away on the bad side of town. The contrast is perfect. For are we not in essence just the same? A body full of contrasts? Our frail hearts are full of hopes of becoming or creating something meaningful. We want our art and our lives to be a throne, to become a resting place, a seat to attract the presence of something greater than ourselves. And yet our materials are finite and limited. But perhaps the most encouraging part of James' prophetic work of art are the words written above the sculpture, Fear not. Fear not. And so I would say, fear not that your life is meaningless. Fear not that you are without purpose or hidden away unrecognized. Fear not that your life is a throwaway or that your unfinished works and unrealized dreams have been a waste. Fear not that your limited capabilities cannot create something glorious. James ultimately didn't finish his throne, nor did he see its final outcome. Yet the art speaks for itself. From the trash cans of government buildings and the curbsides of a dangerous neighborhood to be displayed in one of the world's most prestigious galleries. His years of devotion weren't for naught, and his art still speaks to us today. My takeaway is this. As we remain devoted to the vision we've been given, as we use what we have to use, even our trash, our mistakes, our throwaway moments and detours can become works of art. Just like my detour to Venice Beach landed the book in my hands, which led to the making of this profile, which will lead to who knows what, now that this story is in your hands. And like James's indecipherable language, there are some things that may well just be meant to remind us of mystery. I'm struck with awe at James Hampton's tireless devotion, his relentless faithfulness, his larger-than-life vision, and his humility to continue the work in inhospitable circumstances. 
I've learned a lot from studying the life and work of this outsider artist who never intended to be known as an artist. He was simply building a throne for Jesus with whatever materials he had to work with. Isn't that what any of us are doing? We are each building a throne to something or someone made from the scraps of moments we collect into the summation of our lives, both humble and simultaneously full of splendor.